book of Nehemiah, chapter number four. I appreciate that song. I'm glad that his faithfulness is not contingent on my faithfulness. I'm glad he's not just faithful when I'm faithful. I'm glad even though we stray, he abideth faithful. That's just who he is. It's just how God is. And there's one thing you can't complain about God is his faithfulness. I'm thankful for that. It's been good to be here this week. I've enjoyed every service and all the preaching and all the singing. And I appreciate, of course, Brother Gravely and his spirit and uh, the Bible Baptist Church in Rossville, Georgia. appreciate you folks. And uh, I've been looking forward to this since last year. It's amazing you schedule something out so far and you think, well, that's a long way off. Then you blink your eye and here it is. And then you get in it and you blink your eye and you think, well, I have two services left and then it's over with. And I say that to say this, it's been good at the beginning, the outset. If we're not careful, we got the tendency now to coast to the finish line and kind of ride off of what God has done. But I believe this, God's not through yet. And I think it'd be good not to coast, but to run, to sprint across the finish line and finish this thing out strong. Like we'd say back home, take an old washcloth and just wring it out and get every drop of water out of it that you can. We got to do the same thing with these opportunities. I was preaching in Elkin, North Carolina on Friday last week and Saturday and a bunch of young people there. And uh, I told them, don't take it for granted because this isn't happening everywhere. These kind of meetings that we get to get in on aren't happening all the time all over the place. And uh, we're blessed to get to be a part of something like this. And hopefully not, but there may come a day where we have to look back and say, you remember that meeting we used to do? You remember those people in that church and that place? So let's not take it for granted. And we don't know what God wants to do, but we know this, God wants to do something. Uh, Brother Evan Sprague is with me. He's a deacon from our church in California. We flew together on Monday and uh, got on an airplane at 11 o'clock at night, California time. And uh, I had a first class ticket. And this is perfect, by the way. I had a first class ticket and I don't get first class tickets. I didn't buy it. I got upgraded. God was good to me. That doesn't ever happen on those overnight flights. And I was excited about it. I thought, I'm going to get to sit in first class. Evan, can you stand up for a second? If you'll see, he doesn't mind me. He, he needs first class. I don't need, you can sit down, Evan. That is, he's okay. We were, uh, we were getting on there. I said, uh, I said, Evan, what seat are you? And he said, 23A. And I thought, man, I'm 3A. And I got under conviction about it. And I remembered probably 10 years ago, I was in an airport and this old preacher was there. And he asked me where my seat was, and I said, in the back of the plane. And that old preacher, Joe Arthur, gave me his first-class seat. And uh, I remembered that. Seriously, I got under conviction. I said, I've never done that for anybody in my life. So I thought, I'm going to do it for Evan. So I gave Evan my seat, and I thought, man, God's going to bless me, you know, because we believe in karma and things. So I thought, man, I'm... I thought, man, I feel good vibes on this. You know, I mean, God's going to bless me. I sat down in that window seat and I thought, man, there's going to be some skinny person who's just taking a shower, you know, just anorexic even maybe. I mean, just not take up any room in that chair at all and I'll have all this room. And on the end of the thing sat this man. I thought, well, that's okay. I still got the middle. And I don't know if you got this problem or not, but I can pick out who's going to sit by me in the crowd because you just pick out the biggest, ugliest, weirdest, stinkiest person and they come. I don't know why that happens. I sat there and I had hope because it was like the last person on the plane. I thought, man, I'm going to have this whole aisle almost to myself. And then this fella came. And I don't know if he was going to, he's, I think he's from Japan or something. I don't know if he's going to a sumo wrestling match or what it was. But he's a big old fella and he came snorting down the middle because he's sick like that. Down the, like, no, not anybody but him. He's coughing and snorting. And it's him. 
And he sat beside me the whole way. And here's the, here's the moral of that. Karma's not real. And just because somebody blesses you doesn't mean you've got to bless somebody else. All right. Nehemiah chapter number four. I want to give you the thought God's laid on my heart for tonight. So I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't have to preach last night because I cussed all the way here from California and I had to pray today. Nehemiah chapter number four. If you're able to stand, would you stand with me, please, out of reverence for the word of God? If you know the context of the chapter, this is where opposition begins to form against Nehemiah. Really, a, a confederation of opposition conspire against him. And their plan is to stop the work of God. They don't just not like Nehemiah. They want him dead. But I like Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't quit. Nehemiah doesn't run. And Nehemiah doesn't dip his sail. Nehemiah said, well, I think here's what we ought to do. Let's just get a sword in one hand and a trial in the other. And we'll just keep on doing the will of God anyhow. When we get down to verse number 13, I want you to see what it says. The Bible said, therefore, sit I in the lower places behind the wall. And on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass, when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to Nod, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the machine guns, and the... I don't know how to say it, so we'll say machine guns. And the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which built it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. Look at verse 18. For the builders, everyone, had his sword girded by his side and so builded. This last phrase is what God used to stir my heart. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. Amen. Nehemiah is not living in a day of peace. He's living in an hour of war. Dangerous day. Opposition is mounting. The threat is real and it's imminent. Nehemiah has his workmen who are not used to having swords on their belt put a sword on their side. They're not used to holding a spear. They're used to holding a plow handle, but now they pick up a spear. He said, fellas, we're going to keep serving God anyhow. I mean, if you're going to do something for God, you've got to expect a little opposition anyway. So he said, we'll put a trowel in this hand and a sword in the other, and we're going to stay on the wall. I thought this was interesting, though. Nehemiah, knowing the threat was imminent and the threat was real, did not say, I tell you who I want to be close to, I want to be close to the swordman. He didn't say, in days of danger, I want to stay close to the man with the spear. He didn't say, keep me close to that seasoned soldier. Nehemiah said, I tell you who I want to stay close to. If there's danger, if it's a dark hour and a perilous time, I want to stay as close to that man with the trumpet as I can get. That trumpet, when the occasion comes, he can blast that thing and it might save my life. For a little while this evening, I want to preach on this thought. Thank God for the trumpeter. Thank God for preachers. Thank God for men of God that haven't changed and haven't quit and are still blasting their trumpet, maybe in a small church on the backside of a hill or deep in a dark hollow somewhere in a major city, but you're preaching the Bible. And I'll say this, in this day and hour, you are more essential than ever, more important than ever, and more needed than ever. Don't quit. Thank God for the trumpeter. Let's pray together. God, I pray for your help. 
I pray that you please encourage your men tonight. Help me to lift you up. Be with the preacher to come. I pray for power upon him. Stir our souls for your sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I was reading after a man named Peter Cartwright. I don't know if you've heard of Peter Cartwright before, but Peter Cartwright was a Methodist preacher, sort of a camp meeting preacher, a revival preacher. He's from Kentucky, and he preached during the 1800s, but I want to read you an entry into his journal. He wrote and said this, The camp was lighted up. The trumpet was blown. I rose and required every man to come to the altar. I requested the brethren, if ever they prayed in all their lives, to pray now. My voice was strong and clear. My text was, the gates of hell shall not prevail. In about 30 minutes, the power of God fell on the congregation in such a manner as is seldom seen. The people fell in every direction. It was supposed that no less than 300 fell like dead men in mighty battle. There was no call for mourners. There was no need, for they were strewn all over the campground. Loud wailings went up to heaven from sinners for mercy and a general shout from Christians so the noise could be heard afar off. I read that, and I liked the way he described his preaching. You remember the phrase? He said this, the camp was lighted up, the trumpet was blown. I was in my office not long ago, and I was listening to the radio station from our church, and I don't always listen to it, but I was listening to it that day, and there was a theme that was running on the radio that particular day, and the theme that day was centered on preachers from the past generations. It was a one-hour broadcast that aired, and it had the voices of those old men of God who are now in heaven. Those voices that have been silenced by death were able to thunder out once again over the radio. Those short clips from those sermons began to stir my heart as I sat there. I listened to those preachers, and they were filled with compassion. They were marked by conviction. They were clear. They were direct, they were bold, and they were biblical. I heard men like Lester Roloff get in the pulpit and thunder on the King James Bible. I heard a man named Dr. Tom Malone get up and preach on having Bible convictions. I heard Oliver B. Green get up and in no certain terms said there is a place called hell. I heard Brother Bobby Robertson champion the old time religion. Harold Seitler was on next, and he said how important it is that we're capital B Baptist in everything that we do. A man named Curtis Hudson followed and challenged us to win souls, and Lee Robertson preached on having compassion for those that were lost, and all of those men that are now in heaven were able to stand and preach again via the radio, and I thought about that. Death had silenced their voices, but it was obvious to me now, decades later, that those men were watchmen in their generations, and they stood as trumpeters on the wall in their day. I got to know some of those men. I got to preach with a couple of those men. I've tried to study after all of those men and there's no doubt about it. There was something different about that generation of men of God. You study it out and look at history. Under their tenure, we saw some of the greatest ministries God ever built in America. In their generation, souls were saved and won to Christ. Families were salvaged and put back together. Prodigals came back to the Father's house. America had a proverbial John the Baptist 
when America had a J. Frank Norris. America had a proverbial Peter when America had a Billy Sunday. Our nation tonight has only survived as long as she has because God has blessed us through these generations with generation after generation of old-fashioned Bible trumpeters from the earliest days of our country. It's been the man who preaches the Bible that has preserved our nation. In the colonial days, the trumpet blasted as men like Whitfield and Edward and Wesley and Shubal Stearns would stir the embers of revival, call America to righteousness, and plant churches throughout the eastern United States. I remember the story of George Whitfield as he preached long in the day. He was weary going to his room to retire. He was sick, not well, but a crowd followed him to his inn and said, Preacher, please preach the gospel again. That old man of God consumed by his calling turned around and walked down the steps with a candle burning in his hand. He preached Christ to that crowd, went to his room, the candle burned out, and God took him home to glory. I remember reading John Wesley preaching in his parents' church. As he preached, he preached too straight and too hard for that crowd. They ran him out, but I like it. He didn't tuck tail and run. He didn't go sell insurance the next day. He went out to the graveyard of that church, got on his daddy's tombstone, and finished his sermon. I say thank God for the Bible trumpet. During the days of the Civil War, you could hear the trumpet sound while men were shedding their blood on the battlefields of North and South. D.O. Moody blasted his trumpet to save the souls of men on a spiritual battlefield. From Massachusetts to Chicago to land scattered abroad, Moody sounded the gospel to men on the edge of eternity. Evangelist Charles Finney, unorthodox and strange, but God used that man to usher in a second great awakening. I say thank God for the Bible trumpeter. In the southeastern United States, a man named Sam Jones would trumpet the gospel to saved and lost alike. His campaigns in the late 1800s led to some 500,000 professions of faith. He was straightforward and hard-edged. He didn't come to town tooting a kazoo. He came to town blasting a trumpet. In one revival, the pastors of the town got upset with his preaching. They thought he was too negative. They didn't like his mannerisms. So they gathered and had a prayer meeting to pray for him to change. Sam Jones rode by that prayer meeting and got encouraged. He saw those backslidden, compromising preachers praying and thought, I want to go get in on the prayer meeting. As he slipped in, he heard them pray. And here's what they said. They said, God, help Sam Jones to have some tact. Help him to have some manners. Help him to change the way that he preaches. And then Sam Jones rose up to pray. And I like what he said. He said, Lord, I hope you won't listen to one of these sorry preachers. They don't preach against sin. They don't visit door to door. They don't weep over lost people and they don't win souls. He said, God, they want you to change me so I'll be just like them. He said, oh Lord, these preachers don't have enough sense to realize that if you answer their prayers, I'd be just as worthless and no count as they are. I'd be too lazy to work. I'd be too afraid to fight sin and too cold to cry over sinners. Please God, don't make me sorry like those fellas. I like it. He just went ahead and kept blasting the trumpet. D.O. Moody once attended a Sam Jones meeting and wrote him a letter and said to Sam Jones, God has put in your hand the sledgehammer with which to shatter the formalism of the church and batter down the strongholds of sin and you're using it mightily. He might have ruffled feathers. He might have rubbed Christians the wrong way. He might have 
make compromising Christians uncomfortable, but I'm glad there's a lot of sinners saved when there was a Bible trumpeter like a Sam Jones, J. Wilbur Chapman, and Billy Sunday led America out of the 19th century and into the 20th century as they blasted the trumpet. They held large citywide revival meetings, and some of them went on for several months. America was not crowding the ball field. They weren't packing out the theater. They were filling up old wooden brush harbors and tabernacles on the landscape of America. They were packing it to capacity as men would walk the sawdust trail and get born again. Billy someday would blast his trumpet and say, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till it goes home to glory or I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. I read where Billy Sunday would pace his platform and find a knot hole in the wood. He'd get down on his hands and knees and dare the devil to crawl up and fight like a man. That's a long cry from this generation of preachers that wants to quit over one mean tweet that comes across their social media feed. I like it when that man trumpeted his Bible. The bar was shut down. The theater was closed. Crooked men got straight. Sinners got saved. Saved people repented and churches had revival. All of those things happened because of a Bible trumpet. Historically, the trumpet blast has been scorned by the unbeliever, misunderstood by the skeptic, neglected by the world, and a constant target of the devil. Our flesh doesn't like it. It's like an alarm clock in the morning. But I'll say this, you and I need to hear the gospel trumpet. You can't listen to the record of human history without hearing the Bible trumpet being blown. It was the trumpet blast that brought revival to Nineveh. It was the trumpet blast that brought salvation to Jerusalem. God himself gave his backing to the Bible trumpeter when he said, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For after that, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Thank God for the preacher. From Noah who preached righteousness to Jeremiah who preached with tears to Jesus Christ who was anointed to preach. The Bible's a record of God blessing and using the Bible trumpeter. In Nehemiah chapter 4, these workers are scattered around the wall. But Nehemiah says, I'm going to make it a point to stay tight to the man with that trumpet danger's close and the enemy's near and the threat is real and he said I tell you this much I want to be by the trumpeter now it's probably safe to say that if we were to take a survey tonight to name all of the instrumental characters from the book of Nehemiah we wouldn't name the trumpeter you might name Nehemiah if you're a Bible student <laughs> okay maybe you wouldn't maybe Sam Ballant and Tobiah I don't know maybe the king maybe Asaph uh, Ezra I don't know but I doubt we'd say the trumpeter. But isn't it interesting here? Nehemiah says, that man with the trumpet, he better stay close. I want to stay as close to him as I can get. I think it's interesting. These adversaries conspire against the work of God. And let me say it again. Anytime you strive to do a work for God, there's going to be opposition. If you enlist, you're not enlisting on a pleasure cruise, man. It's a battleship. Let's roll off said it's not a recreation room, it's a battlefield, brother. And it is every single day. 
In verse 7 through 8, we won't take the time to read it, but you can look at it there. This confederation of enemies begin to gather, join together to fight Nehemiah. They don't want to just stop the work. They want to kill the workmen. And that report makes it to the people of Judah. And they get kind of weak in the knees over this. They're a little bit worried, a little bit nervous that maybe the work should cease. And now they're in danger. But I like how it starts in verse 13. Nehemiah begins, says, therefore, said I in the lower places. I like that. He said, because of the threat, he said, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to have a plan of attack, a plan of action against the threat. He's not looking to run. He's looking to plant his flag and take his stand. And here's what he says. Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. I like what he says. He said, I think we'll just fight on anyhow. He said, you remember your family and fight on. Remember your wife and fight on. Remember your children and fight on. Remember the God of heavens on our side and fight on. Oh my, what a marching order for Christians in this generation that we remember the Lord is on his throne and just fight on. So here's what he does. He gets half of his workers to stand guard and the other half to labor on the wall. Every man on the wall has a sword and has a trowel. I want you to picture it with me in your mind. The walls are joined together, but they're only halfway finished. All along the wall now are these workers turned into soldiers. They'd enlisted to build and now they've and called to battle. These men are holding spears, but they're used to holding hammers. They're holding bows, but they're used to holding plows. These men have swords on their belt, but they've never had a sword until this moment. The danger is real, and the threat is elevated, and these men are now on the wall. But up there on the wall, next to those men, stands Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the key man. Nehemiah is the key to the work of God being finished. He's the leader of the operation. If they lose Nehemiah, Nehemiah, man, they're going to lose it all. The remnant can't afford to have Nehemiah fall in this battle. Now, logically, you'd think, well, if Nehemiah's important, we want to find the most seasoned soldier, the strongest soldier, and have Nehemiah tied tight to that seasoned soldier. I would just assume if there's a man there that knows how to swing a sword, I'd want to find a fellow that can swing a sword like Barry Bonds post steroids, and I'd put him right next to that steroid swordsman. If there's a man there that can throw a spear, I want to find a man that can throw a spear a hundred miles an hour and say Nehemiah, you go stand by that man with the spear. If there's a man there with that machine gun, man, I want to find a guy who's got a dead eye with his machine gun and say, you stand there by Brother Al Capone on that wall. That's where I want you to be. I mean, out of all those men, I think Nehemiah would stand by one of those fellows with that heavy artillery. But the phrase in verse 18, I think is worthy of our notice. I don't think it's there by accident. I think it's there by providence because there my Bible tells me that Nehemiah said, I don't want to be close to the swordsman. I don't want to be close to the bowman. I don't need to be close to the other fellas up there. He said, but there's a little old fellow over there. He's not much to look at, but it's not the man. It's what's in his hand. He said, I'll tell you what it is. He's got a trumpet. I want to be close to that fellow with the trumpet. Why? Because he can see what others won't see. He doesn't have to focus on the wall. He he can look on the war. He can look out there to see the enemy approaching. And he can blast that trumpet. And when the trumpet's blown, I'll know how to act. I'll know how to live. I'll know what I've had to need a duck and cover or charge the enemy. I want to stay close to the man with the trumpet. Man, that trumpet is probably no imposing force. I'd say he's scrawny like these fellows on the front row. These Mississippi boys here rode the short bus up from Mississippi. 
They're all eight foot tall, so that was a dumb thing to say, wasn't it? Good night. Speaking of steroids. Anyway, he's, he's, maybe he's scrawny. He's not special forces. Maybe he's special, but not special forces. His bicep looked like a ping pong ball bouncing across the table. His chest looked like a divot in the fairway. Amen. Look at your neighbor and say, that's you. He's a little bit unathletic and pretty unimpressive, maybe from a physical standpoint. His appearance on the battlefield would not scare the enemy. But it wasn't about the man, I said. It's about what he held in his hand. There's an enemy out there. Nehemiah said, I want to be close to the trumpeter. If there's a threat out there, I want to stay close to my trumpeter. If there's danger close, I want to be close to my trumpeter. Yeah, the swords are important and we'll need those spears, but can I say none of that's going to get put into motion until the trumpet says go. And I like what it says. I want to stay as close to that trumpet as I can get. Now, let me apply it and I'll be through. When that trumpet blows, it's not going to blow an uncertain sound. When that trumpeter makes his sound, the soldiers will know exactly what to do. It's going to cut. It's going to be clear. It'll be a catalyst for action. There's no mistake in the trumpet for any other instrument. It's not real soothing, but it sure is reviving. It sure is alarming. It sure is awakening. Having a trumpeter there can give Nehemiah some peace of mind in the midst of this crisis because he knows there's a man there that's got my back. There's a man there that's got my welfare. There's a man there who's looking out for my need. There's a man there who cares for my soul. There's a man there who's watching over me. So Nehemiah said, I can get back to the work because that man's watching. I can get back to the work because that man's on guard. I can get back to my life because that man's standing on ready. He's sitting there waiting. Can I say thank God for a trumpeter? Now let me apply it. Sound the battle cry. See the foe is nigh. Raise the standard high for the Lord. I thank God tonight for every man of God that God has put his hand upon filled with the Holy Ghost and called in the ministry. I thank God for the trumpeter tonight. I don't know about you but in this day of media I don't think we need media. We need some men of God. We need some prophets with a mantle from heaven that'll step out on the battlefield, stand upon the wall, fill in the gap, make up the hedge, and blast the trumpet. I thank God they're not for preachers. I love preachers. They're weird, I know that, but they're wonderful. I love preachers. I love Bible preaching. You can't preach it too hard. You can't preach it too high. You can't preach it too holy. You can't preach it too long. You can't preach it too loud. You can't preach it too straight. You can't preach it too strict. You can't preach it. Hey, I like spirit-filled preaching. I like sanctified preaching. I like steadfast preaching. I like stirring preaching. I like deep preaching. I like devotional preaching. I like preaching. I like energized preaching. I like excited preaching. I like fervent preaching. I like faithful preaching. I like fighting preaching. Amen. I like preaching on things. I like preaching on truth. I just like preaching. I don't need. I don't need a PowerPoint. I like power in the in the points. Amen. Right there. I don't need some cute illustration. I like the word of God. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Reader's Digest never changed my life. Field and Stream Magazine never changed my life. I never once read a tweet that changed my life. But Bible preaching has changed my life. I thank God for the old man of God that preached on that day when the Holy Ghost convicted my soul. I'm glad he wasn't ashamed to spit. I'm glad he wasn't 
wasn't ashamed to sweat. I'm glad he didn't apologize for his stand. He walked in that pulpit with a 1611 King James Bible, reared back and let it rip. He preached the devil out of me, and I said amen anyhow. I thank God for that preaching. I thank God for that preacher. Where would you be without a preacher? Where would your home be without a preacher? Where would your marriage be without a preacher? I'd be in hell right now if it wasn't for a preacher. I might be on the street tonight if not for a preacher. I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm not saying they got it all together. I'm just saying that's God's man. And in this generation, God help. Help us not to take for granted. We got a trumpeter. Thank God for a Bible preacher. It's that trumpet blast that'll salvage a nation. It's that trumpet blast that'll convince the gainsayer. It's that trumpet blast that'll convict the sinner. It's that trumpet blast that'll lead the prodigal home. It's that trumpet blast that calls a servant. It's the trumpet blast that strengthens a home. Thank God for sound doctrine. Thank God for a stern rebuke. Thank God for steadfastness. Thank God for preachers. Tonight, your preacher is more important than your president. Your preacher is more important than your physician. Your preacher is more important than your employer. Your preacher is more important than your educator. They watch for your soul. Preaching is a plow for fallow ground. Preaching is water for a thirsty soul. Preaching is meat to one who's starving spiritually. Preaching is sunshine on the dark hours. <laughs> preaching is a beacon in a sin-darkened world. Thank God for Bible preaching. I thank God for that day. I wandered into a little old church in Newton, West Virginia. No cell service. You type that in your GPS and the GPS says, you got to be kidding. Man, I walked up to the back door of that church that day. I was the cutest boy at church. I didn't know how to dress. I dressed then like y'all dress now when you're not in church. I had on shorts and a pink t-shirt, flip-flops. Man, I should have been born in California after all, I reckon. I, don't know. I thought I was out of place, but I feel kind of like I fit in now. You wait till you see Evan and his short. He left. Where did Evan go? He got a. Sorry, devil. Anyway, man, I walked in the back door of that church and there's two fellows there in suits. I thought they were bouncers. I'd never been anywhere with ushers or greeters. I don't know what you call them. Men at arms, you know, standing there. I walked up to the back door of that church house and those fellows said, Hey, brother. And I said, Dude, I don't know you. I've never seen you before. We're not related. Have no idea who you are. You say, why'd you go to church there? Because the woman who's my wife now went there. I just went for a date. I don't care if you got to swallow a goldfish, sell an iPad, or as a hot woman, man, whatever it takes to get them in. You know, that's a good campaign. That's a good, it worked. I'm saying, going to heaven because of it. I walked in the back. Just, you heard that song of Solomon. Anyway, uh, I, I walked in there. I looked at Brother Flora and said, do you think we should make Parker leave for this message? Anyway. I walked in there and I said, he said, why are you here? And I said, I'm here for her. And they said, well, she, her family sits up there. I walked up to their assigned pew. You know, independent Baptist people have their seat. I sat down there in that row with her 500 brothers and sisters. I'm talking about denim jumpers for days all the way down the aisle. They started singing songs like I heard on Andy Griffith. You know, leaning on the everlasting arms and rock of ages. Cleft for me. I thought, man, that's pretty good. And every once in a while, someone say, amen, scare me half to death. I'd never heard him shout in church. 
And now we're paying people too, you know. Then the preacher got in the pulpit and the first thing out of his mouth was, bless God. I didn't know what that meant back then. Now I do. <laughs> it's about to get mean in here. You know? He said, bless God. He's a hacker. He said, bless God, get out your 1611 King James Bible. I thought, what does that, what does that mean? I never heard that in my life. You know, we go soul winning sometimes and use our theological words. The people with those fruity pebbles on their chin probably wonder what we're talking about. I thought he meant the size of it. Seriously, you can ask. I measured my little burgundy Bible I took. Measured down the bottom of it, seven inches. I measured up this side of it with my finger, eight inches. I thought, good night, I'm trying to impress this girl. Got this little inadequate eight by seven. King James Bible. <laughs> I said, all these other fellows, they got this 16 pound left. My goodness. I was embarrassed. I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, I got the wrong Bible. She said, it's King James. And I said, it is, but it's an eight by seven. <laughs> she looked at me first time, but she says it almost daily now. Sweet voice. He said, take your Bible, go to first John. I didn't know there was a first John. Did you? Anyway, I turned to John chapter number one. He began to read out of 1 John. I read, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with him. I thought, man, that girl's good looking, but she's dumb, man. This is not the right Bible. It's the wrong Bible. And then he took off preaching. And I'm talking about preaching, capital letters, bold font, neon light in the front of Krispy Kreme donut. He's preaching like a horse out of the gate of the Kentucky Derby, 100 miles a minute. I mean, he started going out. He's about 70 years old, took his leg, hiked it up on the pulpit, had on cowboy boots. I thought, that dude's demon-possessed. Ain't no old man, that flexible. And he's just letting her rip. Eyes as big around his paper plates as I stared at him. I watched him preaching like a human thermometer. The red line began to climb higher and higher up his head. I mean, his eyes were bugging out, and mine were even buggier than that. I watched his veins appear all over his body. All those sudden I saw veins like PVC pipe going from ear up lobe to shoulder blade, a vein like an anaconda going up between his eyes. I thought, man, this dude's going to kill us. He's off his medication. He smoked some bad dope before the service. I thought, man, they're going to lock the doors, have us drink Kool-Aid, kiss a copperhead, hug a rattlesnake, tap a tambourine. I said, man, I think I saw this thing on 2020. Now that I think of it, I thought, where in the world am I at? I thought, man, that girl's good looking, but I don't want to die for her. I thought, I'll never see my mama again. I'll never see my daddy again. I thought they're going to beam us up to some mothership somewhere. I mean, that dude's he's off his medication. He's mad. He's spitting on the first five rows, preaching against baseball cards and buttermilk and cabbage and cottage cheese. I thought, good night. People are saying amen. I thought, stop. He's not going to quit if we don't stop. And he just kept going and going and skinning our shins. In Jesus' name, I was scared to death. I sat there and looked at him like some of y'all have looked at me tonight. And I thought, what in the world is going on? And then he wound her down and gave an invitation. And he said, but God coming in his love toward Justin and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. At least that's how it sounded to me. I was 21 years old, lost without God. And for the first time in my life, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin. I thank God that day he didn't feel awkward about preaching. I'm glad he didn't spend the Saturday night looking for some cute cliche and putting together a PowerPoint. Well, I'm going to preach on this desert today, so let me show you a picture. Here's what the desert looks like. See that sand right there? And that there's a rattlesnake. I said, no, the one in the pulpit's the snake. But anyhow, I'm glad he just got up there and didn't say sorry or apologize or get his wife's permission. And he just preached to those 50 people, not knowing I was one of them. And he's still pastoring that little church tonight. Nobody knows his name, but I'm saved and I'm preaching because of somebody you never will meet, probably, or don't know. And can I say, you're blessed tonight. 
if you've got a preacher. You ought to find your preacher, call him, text him, his wife, say thank you for being faithful. And let me say this to you preachers, thank you for being faithful. And I pray tonight, God, just let me get up here for a minute and encourage you. You're making a difference. And you matter. As you drive the roads, as you sleep in the car, as you study all night and labor in your Bible, as you deal with all the mess that has nothing to do with what you're supposed to be doing, can I say God's keeping score? And you're salvaging what's left of our nation tonight. I'm going to pray if you want to come find a preacher, say thank you. You want to come pray? Maybe you're a preacher. You thought about quitting. Don't you quit. Please don't quit. Just blast the trumpet. Let's spend a few minutes in prayer. Let's pray, <clears throat> pray together with me. Would you, Lord, thank you for the privilege to be in the ministry. God, remember the day you called me to preach. Thank you for that calling. God, I pray that we'd never get over the fact that you'll let us serve you. Thank you for these faithful men that are here in this building tonight, God. All of us have a different ministry, but we're all in the same thing, pulling the same direction. I pray you'd encourage your men tonight, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet if you would as for the water sings and plays. Altar's open. Maybe you want to find a preacher and just tell him thank you. Go to some of your friends tonight. We all here together. Thank you for serving. Thank you for what you do. Maybe his wife, encourage her. Altar's open if you need to come. Don't you quit. I don't care if you preach to five or 500, two meetings a year or every week, you're making a difference. You, pre you preach in the prison, preach in the nursing home, preach on the street corner, preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, get up and teach Sunday school, but keep preaching. Keep preaching. Altar's open.